Alright, and welcome back to Story Revolution. We're going to be talking about the prestige today. I'm going to be talking a little bit about my journey of faith and what that's meant to me. Like I said, each week I'm going to tell a story about my life and um, or my family's life. Last week I was talking about my grandfather and how he came to this country. And um, we're going to be talking about the story of Abram, just continuing with Abram and his journey. And so, let's get started. Welcome to Story Revolution with your host, Michael Hernandez, your very own local Cuban. So, let's talk about The Prestige. Well, one, I love this movie. I watched it actually for the first time. Um, not for the first time, but I had seen it when I was so young that I think I I missed a lot of the significance of the movie. And I, I just remember liking it and being like, there was some cool stuff in that. But I was so young when I watched it with my brothers. I don't remember much, and so I watched it again the other night, and it was just so good. I mean, I was just so wowed by the movie. I love Christopher Nolan, so, um, and a lot of time I watch movies based on who directs them, so I thought, well, I gotta watch this again. So I start watching it, and one thing that impressed me about the movie is I didn't know where it was gonna end, and I knew the whole time that, you know, there was, uh, that there was definitely gonna be a bit of the unexpected. It wasn't exactly a twist ending, but it was just an ending where, you're really trying to put all these pieces together and you can't quite figure out where it's going. So what's the movie about? Well, the movie's about these two magicians and basically their, you know, their career with each other. They're illusionists. They're trying to um, outdo each other with having the best trick, having the best illusions. And um, they work together at one point, but they get split up because of uh, some disputes break out between them and there's actually a bit of tragedy that, sep- that separates them. Um, one of the magicians fails to do a trick correctly, and the other one's wife actually ends up dying. It's a little hard to explain outside of the context of the movie, but that's basically it. And so this whole movie is just about this guy really trying to get back at him and really trying to, um, you know, really trying to make up for what he's done and trying to make him pay for what he's done while the other guy is sort of angry with him and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel like he's in the wrong in a sense and, and he's trying to one-up the other guy. And so it's just this back and forth sabotaging each other, going after each other, just you know, ruining each other's tricks, trying to get in the audience and be asked to be the guy who's going to be called up You because know, this is a magic show, so there's always somebody called up and asked to do something. And so they do crazy things to fight each other. And the reason it's so such a good movie is because you, you just know that this fight is not going to turn out the way that anybody wants it and anybody suspects because these men are both giving... Um, so much passion and energy and time to just this uh, this battle. In a way, it consumes them both. In a way, you know that it can't end well. So you know that, but the beautiful thing about this story is the director knows where this ending is going to go, knows where this battle is going to take him. And there's little hints throughout the movie. There's little hints throughout the film of where it's going, and there's these little sleight-of-hand things. And it's a story and a movie that's so much better the second time. And I think that um, a lot of the essence of what I think makes The Prestige such a good movie is there's so many little things going on that when you're watching it the first time, you know they're all pointing to something, but you can't exactly figure out where they're pointing to. And so you're trying to figure out, um, well, is this going to happen? Is he going to do this? What's, what's going to happen next? And you kind of know where it's going and you have some ideas, but you don't fully know where it's going to end up. And so I think... You know, the beautiful thing about movies and about stories, especially when you have a good director, is he knows the ending. And so he knows 
um, where the story's going, how it's going to end. And so along the way, if you're telling a story well and you're really thinking about, hey, what is my story in full? What is my story from beginning to end? Then you know how to make every detail matter. I think the worst thing you see in movies is when it just feels like, you know, they had all these random details that had nothing to do with the ending. And that it doesn't really feel like the director had any idea how he was going to, um, what he wanted to put in the middle. He just kind of knew where he wanted to end. But a good director knows where he wants to start and where he wants to end. And he makes sure that every point in between is crafted so well that you're just wrapped into this story and you're, um, that you're wrapped into the story and you are just so ready for the ending and you're just so anticipating what's going to happen and you have your guesses and your clues and, and then it's kind of like this sleight of hand where you think it's going to be this one thing and all of a sudden the director brings out this whole new twist and, and he knew the whole time you would be thinking um, that you'd be thinking kind of wrong about it. And it was sort of like the whole movie in itself was a magic trick. And that's what I love about good storytelling is it feels like a magic trick. It feels like, it feels like um, you know, somebody's telling you to watch this, you know, watch the right hand, but really he's doing something with the left. And that's what a good storyteller is going to do. They're going to... Make sure that you're looking towards the ending and that you're looking towards the conclusion and that you're you're trying to guess and see and think where it's going. And they're going to give you just enough clues so that you can have some guesses, but really they know where the where it's going to end. And, um, and it's not as much like a twist as it is just like, oh, that's what happened. And it's just kind of this bow at the end of, um, or this bow on top of a really good present. So when you're telling a story, don't rush through the details. Don't rush through the juicy stuff, the good stuff. I think sometimes we think stories are better told fast, but I don't believe that. I think you should take your time and enjoy the story because it's so beautiful when you can take people through every detail. So, you know, when a detail matters to you, when you feel like that detail really got you to the end, tell it and let it be known. That's a good thing. So next I'm going to talk a little bit about, I don't want to say um, my testimony or something like that, but just my story of faith. And every week I'm going to tell different stories about my life, and I don't want everything I do to be kind of aimed at faith. So I'm going to talk about different movies, different stories. But for those of you who know this story, for those of you who don't, I'm not going to expound and go through every detail. But I want to give some, I think, just idea of why I am where I am. How could I grow up in a, a place and in a family that really wasn't um, a Christian fam- family, meaning, you know, not a Sunday-going, church-going family. Um, you know, I had some idea of spirituality and all those things, and I honor a lot of my, uh, just the freedoms that my family gave, gave me, and it's not like they forced anything on me or pushed me into anything. Or um, I think just, you know, I think they encouraged me to to search things out. But it was kind of an interesting life so I'm going to give this an overview and just uh hopefully gives you an idea of why I am who I am so I think when everybody tries to talk about their story of faith they always go back to when they were young and moments that happened when they were young because a lot of the time we don't realize we think that everything we do is just oh well, that's just how I am and you know and that's true but who you are a lot of the time is affected by um, who you grew up with and how you grew up and what your home situation was like and a whole bunch of different factors that you're not really in control of. And that's kind of a scary reality, you know, because you want to feel like you're this independent um, being who makes their own choices and does everything because they want to. You don't want to think that really you're being driven by um, maybe past hurt or past pain. 
And I think for me, there was a couple of things that really marked me. I had a great childhood growing up, loved, had so many cousins um, that are just a huge part of my life, still are a huge part of my life. I had um, brothers who were awesome and, you know, a little bit older than me and kind of closer to each other. And I was the younger brother of three. And so they kind of were there. They're uh, similar in age, and I was just like a little bit younger, younger than them, so it felt like I more clicked when I was a kid with my cousins. But my home life was what really was interesting to me, and I think when I was young, my parents, um, I, my parents split up before I could remember, and so that was something that I think always kind of marks a kid. Growing up, I don't remember growing up with really my parents in the same house at all. I only remember growing with them in different houses, and they were. Both such different people. My dad, especially when I was a kid, was somebody who was um, really successful financially. He was good at business. He had a lot of those skills. My mom, um, when I was really young, she was actually struggling with an autoimmune disorder called scleroderma. And she had been struggling with that her whole life, but it flared up when I was young, and it was really bad. And the doctors thought when I was, I don't know what age, my family's told me different numbers, but maybe one or two around that time, the doctors said, hey, you have six months to live to her. And I think that sent her down a really, like, just dark place. She was a really strong woman, one of the strongest women I think I've ever met in my life. But, um, you know, she was dealing with lots of pain and these this horrible news and these prognoses that just made her feel hopeless. And so I think for her, dealing with all of that at once, she needed something to suppress it a little bit. So I think um, at that time for her, she found a lot of solace in maybe... Um, drinking or smoking or just, you know, different things like that. And um, she was always present as a mother, but there was just stuff going on and there was hurts going on, I think, in her life that she was still overcoming and still dealing with and still wrestling with. That's kind of what I saw. Um, and my dad, uh, you know, when my him and my mom got divorced, I think that sent him down a really interesting path where he was this uh, Cuban guy and you know, and in I, in Latin families, I've noticed that there's there's not a lot there's not as much divorce, and so I think that was just kind of something for him that it was uh, it was a big deal to be a divorced man in his family, and um, you know he's kind of on top of the business world and everything else can seem great, but all of a sudden he's struggling at home and it's kind of just like what's the point of all this? And so he kind of goes down this path of looking for faith and looking for religion and. His story is kind of his own, and it's really interesting. But, um, you know, reading through every single faith, uh, reading through the Quran and all these different books that he read, the Mahabharata and um, teachings of Buddhism and Hinduism. And I remember he used to meditate when I was a kid. He was, like, practicing Buddhist for a little bit and doing all these different things, and it was super interesting. I never understood, but eventually he was just convinced of the Bible. He was convinced of... Um, Christ and but he doesn't really know how to live it out and I think that was the interesting thing for me watching him is you know he was learning how to live it out but we're in North Jersey we'd never really been a part of a church before he's trying to get you know he's um, married at this time uh, with a young daughter now my stepsister um, she's an awesome girl and she's and they're uh, looking for churches or trying to find their way around they don't really know what's Next, and they're you know getting involved in different churches, different streams, different flavors, and and I'm kind of going along with them. You know, I'm a, about seventh grade, maybe sixth, seventh grade when they start going to church, and they start taking me. My brothers didn't really go as much; they were older, high school age. Um, you know, I think for them it just was like, okay, that's what dad does now. You know, 
And but I start going with him and with my mom, my mom's house, it was kind of a different set of rules. With my dad's house, it was another set of rules and it wasn't um yeah, but it was just kind of strange. And my dad kind of plugs into this one church in Dumont, New Jersey, and my mom is kind of doing her own thing as well and they both love me really well, but it's just like a weird kind of childhood because I'm like there's such a difference of both houses. My dad is really becoming like a sincere believer of Christ and he's learning what that means and how to live it out. And for him, it's a precious thing. Like he's not just taking faith as something. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, it's, he never really had it. So I think he really took it seriously and wanted to understand it in a deeper way. But he's also a logical guy. He's a business guy. So, you know, there's these two kinds of realities that I feel like he was wrestling with. So it was never like just jump all in and like you have, you know, just gun ho but he was definitely like somebody that was stepping towards more and wanting to understand more and my mom at the time definitely had a belief in god and was a very spiritual woman but wasn't going you know we didn't believe in organized religion wasn't like that kind of person and was still struggling with a lot of different things at the doctor um you know uh with what the doctor had said when she was younger saying you know she only has six months to live and all of a sudden she's living you know, 17 years, 15 years later, she's fine. Uh, um, scleroderma went into remission, but she was still dealing with just maybe drinking a little bit too much, doing all that kind of stuff. And so, and her set of rules in house are much different. She was much more hands-off approach, just, hey, do what you want. And um, But if you mess up, at least mess up in my house. I don't want you going out and doing crazy things with your friends. So we had a lot of freedom in my mom's house. And... My dad's house was the opposite. It was like very strict, you know, very kind of orderly, be in bed at this time, do this, clean this. And um, and it was just these two different environments. And I think that was kind of what defined my religious life. I started going to church with my dad because he's my dad. And um, just raised my hand every week because they say, hey, you want to get your sins forgiven? And I mean, I think the interesting thing about the uh, concept of sin and about the concept of all that stuff is that I think we all know in some extent of in some extent that we have that and we deal with that and we all know that there's something wrong there's some separation between us and this infinite we just don't really know what to call it and don't really know how to describe it but we know it's there and I've realized that's more of a reality than uh, most people think and I think most people know it they may not just put the same words to it but there's just a there's just an unrest we have and and it made me raise my hand. I, I wanted more with life, but every week I'd raise my hand in church, and that was it. I just raised my hand, and nothing really happened. Nothing changed. Next week I'd go and do what I wanted to. I was selfish. I was, um, I was just like driven by desire, driven by lust, driven by a whole bunch of different things, and was just living uh, my own life. But I was raising my hand every week in church, and that's kind of it. And I don't think I was a bad person. I think I was definitely, um, you know, I was definitely selfish and a lot of other things, but I think generally people thought I was nice and I consider myself a nice person and I had friends and I wasn't this like bully or this, you know, drug addict or something. I was just kind of a normal kid, um, you know, and that was it. And then I go to college and I go to TCU. It's college in Texas, the Bible Belt. And I think I'm just going to do what I've been doing. I'm going to find a church and start raising my hand over there and start getting saved every week by Jesus and I guess have my sins forgiven and that's it. But I went to this one church and it was an awesome church, this kind of mega church in 
Texas. I've never been to mega churches. I mean, we just don't have those in New in New York and Jersey because you know maybe one or two, but most churches are small little congregations, and because most people aren't religious. But I go to this mega church, super generous, super awesome church. But they start talking about this idea of following Jesus. I'm like, what the heck? Like, what do they mean? Like, following like around the Bible? So I start reading the Bible because that's what they tell me to do. That's what they say following Jesus means. And I'm just floored. This book is crazy. I mean, there's story after story just like, what the heck is going on? Like, you know, and I mean, the most dangerous thing you can tell a Christian to do is read the Bible. Because I... I, I realized how many Christians around me had never read it, you know, and I really think they sincerely believed it, but it's like, I don't fully think they, they had this whole idea of what they believe. They, they knew a very, like, you know, they had the story of the life of Jesus basically down, but even there were so many details within his life and within the whole context of this nation of Israel and all these things, um, that I was just like amazed by and how spiritual the world really was. And I was like, I need, I want to experience these things. And there was this, it seemed to me to be this invitation to experience God. And that's what really hit me. I was like, okay, I want to experience God and I want to get it. Because like, if experiencing God is an option, that seems way better than what I'm doing. I have a nice religious life where people think I'm good, but I don't feel like I've ever experienced God. And I start asking people in my church and they're awesome and they love me and they're so for me, but, you know, I'm just asking them, like, why can't we do this or see this? Like, I want to experience God. You know, isn't, is, can we experience God the way these writers talk about? And honestly, it's just, I realize most people settled for not experiencing Him. For not experiencing God because it's a, it's hard and it's dangerous and it doesn't make sense. And so I dropped out of TCU out of, on, a, on a whim about my junior year and I was like, gotta see something like if there's more to this i really gotta see it and i don't want religion to be real just so i can feel good about myself like i actually want it to be real just so like just because and i think that's a dangerous place to be when you're just saying man is this real or isn't it i don't want it to be real just so i can feel good about myself like i just want it to be real because either it's it, it is real or it's not either this bible is true or it's not there's no middle ground of, well, you're a good person. So I drop out of TCU and I'm just looking for an answer. I'm just looking, somebody show me an answer. Is there any way I can experience this? And I am calling up monasteries. It doesn't really make sense why I'm doing this, but I'm, I figured if I just go sit in a monastery and just pray, if God is real, he will really show up. And that's what I wanted, like a real encounter with God that marked my life. And I thought either he wants to encounter his people or he doesn't or he's not like or it's not possible you know so and I was convinced that God wanted to encounter his people and so I thought hey then you just got to be desperate because it seems to me the only thing that can make that can move the heart of God is desperation there's no great theology or great poems or great music or great anything it's just desperation so I said I got desperate started calling up people and I met this one guy Josh um who did this program in Cyprus off the island of Greece with a bunch of Messianic Jews, so Jews who believe in Christ as the Messiah, and he's just, I didn't know anything about them. All I knew is that they really believed you could encounter God there. And I just didn't feel like there was anybody around me who believed that thing, believed that, that idea that you could encounter God. So I went to Cyprus, and 
it was this beautiful family. Like it was this beautiful group of people where we ate together, we dined together, we worshiped together, we learned about the Lord together, and we just gave everything we were for months to just wanting to know, experience, hear, see, taste God. And I started to actually experience Him and taste Him and see Him. And I realized that experiencing God is so much different than I thought, and it's so much more real than I thought, but at the same time, it's faith, and it's desperation, and it's ugly, and it's messy, and it's everything in between, but it's so worth it. So I just went out and wanted to experience Him and wanted to know Him and wanting to see Him. And I believe I did. And I believe there's an invitation. Always, with anything that you're going to try, any faith or anything, like don't just, you know, say, okay, well, this doctrine or that doctrine, but actually test the words. Say, hey, you know, because there's promises of God. Like there's so many promises that I think I just never tried to test. Even something like God says, hey, if you just give, you know, it's better to give than to receive. Okay, let me actually practice giving to the point where it'd be so crazy how much I gave that um, if this promise was really true, something wild would happen, you know? And just taking him at his word and saying, man, I want to try this, or taking anything at its word. And I think so much of the time we try things, but we don't actually, um, we don't actually do it in faith that something's going to happen. And... That's basically my walk, and there's a whole lot more to that, but let's get into the story of Abram. So anyway, so we know where Abram was kind of this last time. We know where he had been. He had been been really much, been pretty much all over the place, rescuing Lot, doing all these different things, fighting with kings, saving his wife from Egypt. I mean, not really saving his wife, actually getting his wife into trouble and then saving her from the trouble he kind of created, really. But there comes a time where God blesses Abram. So again, God appears to Abram and he makes a covenant with him and he changes his name. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And he keeps reminding him of this promise that he continually reminded him of. But Abram would always forget. He said, in fact, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. He tells him to count the stars again. He challenges him. Can you really count all the descendants? No. Abram replies, in the same way, you're not even going to be able to um, the same way you can't count the stars, the same way you're not going to be able to count your descendant. So I'm going to name you Abraham. You're no longer going to be father of many, but father of many nations. And your wife is not going to be Sarah, but, um, or Sarai, but Sarah. And she's going to be mother of nations. And so every covenant had a sign. This is what's interesting about covenants. So every covenant had, um, some kind of way that they showed what the covenant was. And this covenant sign was circumcision. And so God had told him to circumcise his whole house, any male servant, any male in his house, any child, any father, everybody. And Abraham was 99. So the whole house is circumcised. But Abraham still is just laughing at the craziness of all of this. Is that really possible that my wife, Sarah, would have a son? You must be talking about Ishmael, my son with Hagar. God said, no, I'm talking about Sarah. I'm talking about your wife. She will have a son and you will call him Isaac. Because her name is Sarah, the mother of nations. And so all of his household had been circumcised and all these things he had done and he had believed the Lord. And some time had passed again. 
And again, Abram's starting to maybe doubt the promise. And he was sitting under a tree at Mamre. And he saw three men approaching. Quickly he ran to them and said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, would you stop and eat at my house? And so the Lord said, Do as you say. So he goes inside. He tells his servants. He tells them what to do. Get over everything ready. We're going to have a feast. Um, he tells them uh, to kill the best uh, lamb, to prepare the food, to get the bread, to do everything. He actually goes into his wife and he tells her to make the bread specifically. He tells her to get the dough and to, and to prepare everything and to bring the milk and yogurt. And so they bring out this fresh milk, this yogurt and the lamb. And they eat. And they eat while Abraham stands in the shade. And then these three men, they turn to him. This time next year, your wife will have a son. Sarah heard as she was in the tent. She laughed. Why is she laughing? Is anything too hard for God? But Sarah said, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did. So, after this meal, these three men got up and they were heading to Sodom. And they started to talk amongst themselves. Should we tell him what we're about to do? You'll be a great nation one day. You're going to bless his descendants, and he's going to have many. And so, this, he decided to stay. And so the two left to Sodom, and the Lord stayed with Abram. We are going to see if Sodom's sin is truly unforgivable, and that's why we're going. And Abram knew what was going to, and Abraham knew what was going to happen. My Lord, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Are you going to destroy it then? Would you destroy the wicked with the righteous? No. For the sake of 50, I would not destroy it. My Lord, I'm just dust. I'm just a man before you. I don't have any right to look at you. But what if there was even 40 men? Would you destroy it? No. If there was 40 righteous men, I wouldn't destroy the city. My Lord, I, I shouldn't say anything else. I, I couldn't say anything else, but I must. What if there was 30 men? 30 righteous men, would you save the city then? Yes, I would save the city. I would not destroy it. Well, what if there was 20 righteous men there? Would you destroy it then? No, I wouldn't destroy it. My Lord, what if... I'm, I shouldn't even say this. I shouldn't even be before you, but what if there was just 10? Would you destroy the city then? No. The Lord finished, and he returned on his way. And the two angels arrived at Lot's house. And Lot said to come inside quick. Please stay the night with me. Okay, these angels agreed. And the men from town gathered outside for they saw the angels. Let us have these men. So we can sleep with them. But Lot said, no. Don't do this vile thing to my guests. These are honorary guests in my home. Lot offered them his daughters. He offered them everything else he had. But not these men. But the crowd that had gathered outside his house had now turned into a mob and they wouldn't be satisfied by anything. And so, the angels pulled Lot inside the house and they struck the mob with blindness and everyone among them was blind. But the rage didn't end. Quickly, they told Lot, get everyone in the house, get your daughters, your sons-in-law, your mother, tell them all that the city's going to be destroyed in the morning and we have to go. Lot tried to get everyone, but his sons-in-law didn't even believe him. And by morning... When the men told Lot they had to leave quickly, the sons didn't come. And so they grabbed Lot, his daughters, and his mother, and they ran. 
The sin is great. We must destroy the city. Then we need you to run. Flee to the mountains and don't look back. But last said I can't make it all the way to the mountains. It's too far. You have to let me rest in the nearest town. So they said, okay. Go to the nearest town. Rest there. But don't look back. As the city is destroyed, make sure to keep looking forward at the town that you're running to. Okay. So he took his wife, his daughter, and they ran. But as they were running, his wife stopped and she looked back. And in a moment she was turned to a pillar of salt. So the Lord rained down fire and sulfur from the sky, destroying the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham walked out in the tree where he was sitting with the Lord and he saw all this happening. But God listened and he kept Lot safe. So anyway, that's all for today. Thanks for listening in and uh, listening to the podcast. And um, thanks for listening about the prestige and all those different things. I mean, I love storytelling. I love movies. I love all these things. I, I love how the prestige is a movie that's so much better watched the second time. And I think as you tell stories this week and as you talk with people and just be who you are and tell the stories of your own life, realize that you know the ending and you know the beginning. So care about those little details and care about um, you know, those moments in between and, and pick them carefully. Tell them carefully because a lot of the time, just like... The prestige, it can be so beautiful when you get to the end and you want to hear it all over again because you, cause you just loved all those little details in the middle. And, uh, yeah, a story about Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe one of the most challenging stories, too, in uh, the Christian worldview and trying to understand um, what that means. And that's why we're telling these stories, remember, because um, I want those who are believers and non-believers to be able to understand what it is it actually that Christians believe and what is the world view that they have? And there's a world view being built here. It's not done yet, so don't stop listening. Because the world view needs a beginning and an end. And we're only in the middle. So, anyway, enjoy the week. Keep being you. And I'll talk to you guys soon. See you later.